Welcome to See Uncovered, a place where you'll find the stories of proven entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Ashley Henschel. Washington Post bestselling author and motivational keynote speaker. Laura, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. I wanted to start about your background. Can you give us a little gist about who you are? Sure. So I am, as you mentioned, a motivational keynote speaker. I am the author of uh, a Washington Post bestseller called Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. And that book is based on 20 years of working in the world of executive search, where I was uh, paid by my clients to call the most successful people on the face of the earth and recruit them to work for them. Now, that might sound hard, but in fact, it was made easier by the fact that despite all this success, those people weren't all that happy. And I was constantly fascinated by this idea that success doesn't equal happiness. And I looked at my own career, which started off uh, in law school, where I dropped out to join a presidential campaign, uh, working in the, the president, you know, working in a White House for a president and leaving midway through an administration, which nobody does, going to go work for the biggest marquee firm that did the work that I was looking for, leaving that to start my own firm, something nobody ever does, and then running that for 15 years and selling it to my people, the team that helped me build it. When we were super successful and I could have just hung out and, you know, you know, eaten bonbons and let the, let the money flow in, again, something nobody ever does. So throughout my own career, I also made a lot of changes when I was successful, but I wasn't very happy. So from going to law school, what made you want to get into politics? Well, when I was young, I, um, I grew up in the, in the 80s. So I'm, I'm 50 right now. When I was younger, I grew up in the uh, in the 80s and there were um, the Iran hostage crisis was happening and there were long lines at the gas stations. And it was all about like, why can't the leaders fix things? And I thought I'm going to fix all the problems. And at that point, I was like, I'm going to, you know, run for office and I'm going to be the first, you know, female Democratic senator from the great state of Florida and I'll I'll fix everything. And then I um, got to law school and I looked around and I realized I, I don't want to be like any of these people. I didn't respect my peers. I didn't like the, I didn't like the way that the t- classes were being taught. I was that kid who was called on the very first day of law school. And I was asked question after question, after question, after question, and made to cry by my teacher. Like it just wasn't a good experience. But at the time, everybody who worked, you know, all the, the elected officials had like, for the most part, they were lawyers. They had legal backgrounds. You were making laws. Like it made sense. And I just realized I didn't want to do it. But I will say, because I was so unhappy with where I was, I did what a lot of women do when they're unhappy. I dated a guy who was absolutely terrible for me. And um, it had been rain. I remember there was a day where I was just done. I was just done and I didn't want to be there anymore. And and I used to ride my bike to to class and um, it was raining. And the guy I was dating said, well, you know, I'll give you a ride home. We'll stick your, your, your bike in the back of my IROC Z, which, you know, tells you everything you need to know about this guy. Um, but first we want to stop at this guy's campaign office. He's running for president. And now kids back then before the internet, if you wanted to run for office, you had to have like a little, like a, a local office in like a, in a strip mall where you would print out brochures that had your stances, your, your stances on issues. So I was like, governor who, from where, 
Arkansas, like not a chance in hell. Like George H.W. Bush had just won Desert Storm. He had a 91% approval rating. There was no way that this guy from Arkansas was going to win. And then I walked into the campaign office and there was this little black and white TV in the corner of the room that had then Governor Bill Clinton talking about this idea of service, that there's nothing that's wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America, which by the way, I still believe. And he talked about this idea of service, community service in exchange for college tuition. Improve yourself and your prospects in life while you're also improving your community. And I was like, oh my God, that's the greatest idea ever. That needs to happen. And in that moment, I went from, I'm going to solve all the problems. I'm going to be the solution to how do we put the right people in the right place? What needs to happen to solve the problems? And in fact, I ended up giving a TED talk about this very moment and this, this sort of transition about how we solve big problems. So that was how I ended up going from um, law school into politics was because I was dating a guy who was absolute crap. But he had great, I used to say he had great taste in two things. The first being obviously girlfriends and the second being unknown political candidates from tiny Southern states. So, you know, all knowledge is useful. <laughs> when you were there, you helped start AmeriCorps. Yes. Right. And for those who don't know who are listening, what is AmeriCorps? So AmeriCorps is the national service program. It's like a domestic Peace Corps. Um, You spend a year or two years serving in a community. um, And in exchange for your, your, you know, quote unquote, volunteer time, your your full-time service time, you get uh, college tuition, you get a stipend to go to college. And since that program was started in 1993, we've had over a million young people go through the program and serve and be able to um, create a pathway to and through college. That's amazing. I wanted to ask you, what was your first role in the private sector? When I had been serving in the Clinton White House for four years, for three years, really, um, it, it was time to get back on the campaign trail, right? Like I, like I, I worked on the Clinton campaign. Um, I dropped out of law school, joined the campaign, like in that moment where I, where I, you know, watched the TV, and um, I was ready to get back out on the campaign trail. And on the campaign in 1992, I was uh, what's called an advanced staffer. So that means you go in advance to a town before the other candidates get there, and you you know set up the rally you set up the debate you like create the press line and security line and you know you do all the stuff and um so I went to my then boss uh my mentor uh in the White House and I said all right I'm ready to get back out of the campaign trail and he was like yeah Laura you're um you're 24 you are way too old to be a campaign staffer and sleep in high school gymnasium floors. And I mean, 24 is like 107 in campaign years. It's like dog years, right? He's like, you're way too old to, to, to do that again. He goes, but you're also way too young to be the domestic, uh, uh, the domestic policy advisor. Right. So, um, Go talk to my friend, Arnie Miller. He runs a search firm that does exclusively nonprofit work, right? He works for universities, foundations, advocacy organizations. He'll find you a job in the nonprofit sector and you'll go hide out for four years and then you'll come back and do something big and meaty on Al Gore's presidential campaign. And I went, great, that sounds terrific. So I went to go sit down with Arnie Miller and within five minutes of the conversation, I realized he was from Boston. He, his office was in Boston. And the guy I was now dating, who, by the way, was great, and we've been married for almost 25 years, he did not drive an IROC Z, he drove a used Saab where the windows didn't roll up. Um, I was like, you know, your office is in Boston, and the guy that I'm dating right now, who I think is the one, is about to move to Boston for graduate school. I should come work for you, sir. And he was like, well, you should come work for me. And I was like, great. 
what do you do? And he's like, uh, I am a headhunter. Here's what we do. And so I became a headhunter. <laughs> that was my first job in the private sector. So yeah, I know that your students are like, how do I create a strategic path to becoming a leader? Well, you don't. That is the answer. You don't. Every, like you make plans and life happens around you. And it is not about the, it is not about the brilliance of the plan. It's what you do with your life when everything goes sideways. Yeah. You've had such a successful career. Out of your opinion, where would you say true success comes from? Well, I've had such a successful career if you look at it backwards, right? But in those moments when I was like standing in the campaign office thinking about how do I call my parents and drop out of law school? Like, how do I tell them this? Or, you know, going, uh, moving to Boston, having no idea what I'm doing and following a boy and doing a job that I really was not expecting. While I was working in the White House, I got my master's degree in political management. I was a professional spin doctor and yet I was leaving politics to go to what was I doing? So, you know, I, I think that you can look at a lot of people and say, you've had a successful career, but man, it is easy to connect those dots backwards. It is a lot harder going forward. So for me, success has always come from this idea of, is what I'm doing matching who I am in this moment? And I talk about this in my book, Limitless. It's this idea of consonance, it's alignment, it's flow. It's, it's you, know, you know, those moments where the, the very best of what you do, the thing you love to do is being called upon to solve a problem at hand, a problem that actually matters to you. Yeah. And you are being rewarded for solving that problem in a way that is actually meaningful to you, whether it's financial, karmic, emotional, right? Manifesting your values, whatever that thing may be. If you are in a place where you are doing work you love to solve a problem that matters to you, and you're being rewarded for, in a way, in, for that in a way that is meaningful to you, that's success. Mm -hmm. For some people, it may be curing cancer. For other people, it may be getting out of debt. For others, it might be buying a Maserati in a beach house, but it doesn't matter. It only has to be what is success for you. And how do you tear down those self-limiting beliefs? Well, I think the first thing you do is you figure out who's putting those self-limiting beliefs in your head, right? So for me, in fourth grade, I had a teacher who said, you know, Laura, you're a really argumentative young woman. You should be a lawyer. And I went, okay, right? I was in fourth grade. I didn't question it. I was in fourth grade. I mean, of course, I argued back with her first and I told her she was wrong because, you know, I was argumentative. Mm -hmm. But um, at the time, you know, I was watching, you know, TV shows like LA Law and Allie McBeal and, you know, like uh, Susan Day was dating Harry Hamlin and it was like very glamorous. And I was like, I should do that. Yes. So I created a career path that got me to law school where on the very first day I looked around and I was like, wow, what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think there are people in your life who tell you what you should be and how you should be. When I was in the White House, the guy in between the IROC Z guy and the Saab guy was a nice Jewish medical student named Alan. And my nice Jewish mother was like, you should marry him. And the problem with Alan is that every time I kissed him, all I could think of was like, I got to get, you know, milk, butter, cheese, eggs. I got to pick up the dry cleaning. I should start on that report. There was no spark. So sure. like the fourth grade teacher was like, well, you should be a lawyer. Well, eh, that didn't work. That wasn't my definition of success. No spark. Alan was definitely not my definition of success. And then I found myself in a job at that first um, search firm where the definition of success for my boss was uh, 
a big number at the end of the bottom line, right? The PL. And I would sit in these meetings with my nonprofit clients who were spending a lot of very hard earned, hard raised money with me. And I'd be thinking about, am I going to make my, my nut this quarter? Am I going to get to the number for my boss? And meanwhile, I wasn't thinking about their problem. And so my clients would look at me and realize that I wasn't thinking about their problem, that they needed to find great leadership, but my problem that I need to you know, increase my fees and charge them more money. So I lost their trust and I would lose them as clients. And so I walked into my boss's office one day and I was like, there is a better way to do this work. And he was like, there's the door if you don't like how we do it, right? Like here's, that just wasn't going to work. So I started my own company because what I was doing there wasn't solving the problem in a way that made sense for me. And I was definitely not being rewarded for it in a way that I felt good about. So I think at every age and at every life stage, what you want and what you need are going to change. And I think that you have to keep going back to saying like, is it the fourth grade teacher? Is it the parent? Is it the boss? Maybe it's the voices in my own head that see perfection on the internet because I don't have the cheekbones of Khloe Kardashian. Well, Khloe Kardashian didn't have the cheekbones of Khloe Kardashian last year either, right? So, you know, we, we have all of these inputs that are coming from places that we don't even realize, but we can control and we can remove. I feel like that is so powerful. And as we're looking at students that are going into college, a lot of them are getting, he he said this, she said that for my mom, I want you to be this, but they're getting to college and they're realizing, well, what do I want to be? And I think that is what we're trying to help them figure out before they get to that step and they're looking back and it's a little bit. And I think it's really important to think like when I dropped out of law school, my parents freaked out. When I told them I was leaving the White House, they freaked out. When I told them I was leaving this big firm, they freaked out. And as you've said, I've had a pretty successful career, right? It's worked out okay. But the last time I lived in the same house as my parents, I was 17 years old. I put empty milk cartons back in the refrigerator. I left my dirty socks in the middle of the living room floor. I brought the car back late from curfew on fumes with the radio turned up all the way, right? Like I did not have a frontal lobe. Like I literally did not have the capacity to make good logical sound decisions because my brain was not, was it, it, it had not evolved to that. Like I, my frontal lobe was not there. The part of your brain that actually dictates decision-making, good decision-making. So of course, when I call my parents and I tell them I'm doing these things that sound crazy, they are worried about me, right? Like a lot of the times you get advice from people who are just worried about you, but they don't know you. My parents don't know what I'm capable of. I don't, I don't even live in the same time zone as them anymore. Like they, like they love me, but they don't know me necessarily. Or maybe you run into a friend of the coffee shop and they're like, oh no, you can't do that. That's too scary. What they really mean is I can't do that. I'm too scared. So we have to remember where it's coming from. We also have to remember that there's also those toxic vampires in your life. The ones who are like, oh, I see you're on the rise. That must mean I'm on the fall. So I'm going to smile in front, but there's going to be knives behind, right? I'm going to say little things that are cancerous that are going to grow in your head. And as soon as things get hard and dark and ugly, you're going to remember them and they're going to get louder and louder and louder in your voice. So, you know, we have to remember who, you know, who our family is, those friends and family that come together that, you know, actually make your sounding board that you should have and who your frenemies are. (laughs) At a distance. (laughs) I also wanted to ask you, kind of tying this all in, if you had a piece of advice for a teenager college version of yourself, what would you tell them today? <laughs> oh, I would tell them to wear sunscreen <laughs> and, and floss your teeth. Um, no, what I would tell them is that um, the only one who gets a 
vote is you. Mm-hmm. And we have to stop giving voices in our lives to people who shouldn't have them, right? We're giving, we give voices uh, to people who don't belong in the front row. And we take criticism from everybody, even if they're people who we wouldn't even take praise from. So think about who you were giving votes to and stop giving votes to people who don't even, don't, shouldn't even have voices. Thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to mention for those who are looking for your books, where can we find them and what are all the titles? Yeah. So my name is Laura Gassner Otting and uh, that's a lot of names. So my friends call me LGO. So you can find me at Hey LGO on all the socials. HeyLGO.com is uh, the best uh, uh, shortcut to my website. And my book is called Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path and Live Your Best Life, which is found on Amazon, Barnes and Noble and through bookshop.org through all of your local Thanks for listening to See Uncovered. You can check out more at www.createeveryopportunity.org. Thanks again.